Hello and welcome to the Bipolar Feminist Podcast. This is your host, Nikita Ramkisun, and today we'll be talking about stereotypes and tokenism. Trigger warning, this episode makes mention of many kinds of aggressions towards marginalized people. Stereotypes are the idea that everyone within a certain group shares the same characteristics. We can all think of stereotypes we've heard about different races, cultures, or genders. Stereotypes don't just appear out of nowhere. They are based on ideas and experiences with certain groups and then extended to apply to the entire group. The problem is that people don't function solely as members of a group or as a monolith. Many stereotypes are negative, such as assuming that black people are lazy or criminal. Some are seemingly positive, such as assuming that all Samoans play rugby or that all Asians are musically inclined. Others are just neutral, such as assuming that people eat certain foods or share similar hobbies. But all of them are harmful. They contribute to dysfunctional class systems. Both negative and seemingly positive stereotypes continue to keep marginalized groups such as women and people of color in a disadvantaged status because assumptions, rather than personalized information, can justify the denial of education, employment, housing, and other opportunities. A gender stereotype is a generalized view or preconception about attributes or characteristics or the roles that are ought to be possessed or performed by all genders. A gender stereotype is harmful when it limits people's capacity to develop their personal abilities, pursue their professional careers, and or make choices about their lives based on their gender. Whether overtly hostile, such as women are irrational, or seemingly benign, women are nurturing, harmful stereotypes perpetuate inequality. For example, the traditional view of women as caregivers means that childcare responsibilities often fall exclusively on women. Further, Gender stereotypes compound and intersecting with other stereotypes have disproportionately negative impacts on certain groups of women, such as women from minority or indigenous groups, women with disabilities, women from lower caste groups or with lower economic statuses, migrant women, etc. Gender stereotyping refers to the practice of ascribing an individual specific attributes, characteristics or roles by reason of only their membership in the social group of their gender. Gender stereotyping is harmful when it results in a violation or many violations of human rights and fundamental freedoms. Examples include not criminalizing marital rape, perceiving that women are the sexual property of men, and failing to investigate, prosecute, and sentence sexual violence against women, believing that victims of sexual violence agreed to sexual acts, as they were not dressing or behaving modestly. Wrongful gender stereotyping is a frequent cause of discrimination. It is a contributing factor in violation of a vast array of rights, such as the right to health, adequate standards of living, education, marriage, family relations, work, freedom of expression, freedom of movement, political participation and representation, effective remedy, and freedom from gender-based violence. From girls suck at maths to men are so insensitive to he's getting a bit senile with age or black people struggle at university, there is no shortage of common cultural stereotypes about social groups. Chances are, you've heard most of these examples at some point. In fact, stereotypes are a bit like air, invisible but always present. We all have multiple identities and some of them are likely to be stigmatized. While it may seem that we should just stop paying attention to stereotypes, it's often not that easy. False beliefs about our abilities easily turn into the voice of self-doubt in our heads that can be really hard to ignore. 
and in the past couple of decades, scientists have started to discover that this can have long-term damaging effects on our actual performance. This mechanism is due to what psychologists call stereotype threat, referring to a fear of doing something that would confirm negative perceptions of a stigmatized group of which we are members. The phenomenon was first uncovered by American social psychologists in the 1990s. In a seminal paper, they experimentally demonstrated how racial stereotypes can affect intellectual ability. In their study, black participants performed worse than white participants on verbal ability tests where they were told that the test was diagnostic, a genuine test of your verbal abilities and limitations. However, when this description was excluded, no such effect was seen. Clearly, these individuals had negative thoughts about their verbal ability that affected their performance. Black participants also underperformed when racial stereotypes were activated much more subtly. Just asking participants to identify their race on a demographic questionnaire was enough. What's more, under the threatening conditions of the diagnostic test, black participants reported higher levels of self-doubt than white ones. Stereotype threat effects are very robust and affect all stigmatized groups. A recent analysis of several previous studies on the topic revealed that stereotype threat related to the intellectual domain exists across various experimental manipulations, test types, and ethnic groups, ranging from Black and Latino Americans to Turkish Germans. A wealth of research also links stereotype threat with women's underperformance in maths and leadership aspirations. Yes, men are vulnerable too, but a study showed that men performed worse when decoding nonverbal cues if the test was described as designed to measure social sensitivity, a stereotypically feminine skill. However, when the task was introduced as information processing, they did much better. In a similar vein, when children from poorer families are reminded of their lower socioeconomic status, they underperform on tests described as diagnostic or intellectual, but not otherwise. Stereotype threat has also been shown to affect educational underachievement in immigrant children and the memory performance of the elderly. We must understand, though, that stereotypes about the dominant group cannot be harmful. There is no such thing as racism against white people, nor is sexism against men possible. The groups within society that hold institutional, ideological, and structural power cannot be oppressed, and therefore, any stereotype depicted against them can be considered punching up. This goes for any society where there is an imbalance of power. There have been studies that found that the first time a Christian cishet white man ever experiences any form of oppression is when he retires and is on the receiving end of ageism. The stereotype, therefore, becomes comical rather than harmful. There has been a lot of work in attempting to challenge gender stereotypes and others. Old-fashioned ideas that some toys are for boys and women should stay at home while men work have been challenged and progress has been made. There's still a long way to go, but the proportion of women with college degrees in the U.S. labor force has almost quadrupled since 1970. Statistically, more women now graduate with degrees than men. While the fight for gender equality is far from over, the same efforts to challenge assumptions and provide equal opportunities for people, regardless of race or gender, must be given the same attention. The first step is to identify the stereotype. When you find yourself filling the gaps about a person, stop. Ask yourself. Is this true or am I assuming based on experiences with other people who look like them? And then make the intentional effort to get to know the person. There is a severe need to get proximity. Often when we begin to interact with people who are different from us, our experience of the other expands. It's important to surface the rolling tape of narratives about others that play in our heads. Once stereotypes are challenged repeatedly, it makes it harder to stereotype in the future. It's also important to remember that the triggering cues can be very subtle. 
One study demonstrated that when women viewed only two advertisements based on gender stereotypes among six commercials, they tended to avoid leadership roles in a subsequent task. This was the case even though the commercials had nothing to do with leadership. Stereotype threat leads to the vicious cycle of stigmatized individuals experiencing anxiety, which depletes their cognitive resources and lends to underperformance, confirmation of the negative stereotype, and reinforcement of the fear. Researchers have identified a number of interrelated mechanisms responsible for this effect, with the key being deficits in working memory capacity, the ability to concentrate on the task at hand and ignore distraction. Working memory under stereotype threat conditions is affected by psychological stress, performance monitoring, and suppression processes of anxiety and the stereotype. Neuroscientists have even measured these effects in the brain. When we are affected by the stereotype threat, brain regions responsible for emotional self-regulation and social feedback are activated, while activity in the regions responsible for task performance is inhibited. In a recent study published in Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience, researchers demonstrated this effect on ageism. They used an EEG, a device which places electrodes on the scalp to track and record brainwave patterns to show that older adults, having read a report about memory declining with age, experienced neural activation corresponding to having negative thoughts about themselves. They also underperformed in the subsequent timed categorization task. There is hope, however. Emerging studies on how to reduce stereotype thrift identify a range of methods, the most obvious being changing the stereotype. Ultimately, this is the way to eliminate the problem once and for all. But changing stereotypes sadly often takes time, a lot more time than we have in our lifetime. While researchers are working on it, there are techniques to help people cope. For example, visible, accessible and relevant role models are important. One study reported a positive Obama effect on African Americans. Whenever Obama drew press attention for positive, stereotype-defying reasons, stereotype threat effects were markedly reduced in exam performance. Other methods is to buffer the threat by shifting self-perceptions to positive group identity or self-affirmation. For example, Asian women underperformed on maths tests when reminded of their gender identity, but not when reminded of their Asian identity. This is because Asian individuals are stereotypically seen as good at maths. In the same way, many of us belong to a few different groups. It is something worth shifting the focus towards when one gives us strength. Gaining confidence by practicing the otherwise threatening task is also beneficial. One way to do this could be by reframing the task as a challenge. Finally, merely being aware of the damaging effects of the stereotype can help us reinterpret the anxiety and make us more likely to perform better. We may not be able to avoid the stereotype completely, I mean the world is full of assholes, but we can try to clear the air of them. Stereotyping is just one of the things that impact people in ways that homogenizes large groups of people and it can lead to what is called tokenism. When strategies for improving an organization's diversity are initially considered, one of the first entrenched ideas that must be challenged is having an entirely homogenous society. Then, once an organization has begun assembling this diverse pool that they feel they need to have, the focus shifts towards inclusion and counteracting isolation that many marginalized people may naturally feel moving into a space with existing dominant cultures. But tokenism happens. Tokenism is one significant danger of this complex renegotiation of diversity and inclusion. It's the mismatch between an organization's performative effort and its actual record on inclusive behavior. Organizations risk tokenistic displays whenever individuals of marginalized backgrounds are highlighted in public events, photos, or speaking opportunities. It's generally considered desirable in business to appear diverse. If the underlying organization isn't diverse, then its power remains with the dominant group. Accusations of tokenism are ultimately well-founded.
A good litmus test is when an organization claims to support marginalized groups during the likes of Women's Month or Black History Month, ask them to show the racial and gender diversity in their leadership and see how fast they block you on social media. I am the only one in the room is a familiar refrain from marginalized employees, and being conscious of this fact can have a significant impact on how an individual approaches their work and the opportunities that come their way. The feeling manifests in extra pressure to perform or a desire to avoid perpetuating negative stereotypes, whether the need to do so is real or imagined. The effect is the same. Now, imagine a black employee is approached to be photographed for the organization's new website or to speak at an upcoming conference. They will likely be hesitant to turn it down because they're worried that their concern will be seen as them being stereotypically difficult. It's easy for people in this position to feel like they're perceived as a monolith, the sole representative of a wider group. Tokenization is rarely a boon. Anyone pushed into this position has a right to feel simultaneously overexposed and undervalued, and it can be exhausting to carry the burden of representing your group in simple day-to-day -day interactions. Doing the same publicly can only intensify that feeling. If an employee feels like they're only there for diversity scorecards, their confidence and ability to do their job will be impacted, and resentment will inevitably grow. They may also feel that there's little room for psychological safety. After all, every time they're cornered into an opportunity, they have to weigh up whether to play along or push back. It's important to not only reflect on employee experiences, but consider the harm that tokenism causes to organizations, any organization, not just corporate. These organizations have real opportunities to grow diversity and build retention through diversity, equity, and inclusion. But when shortcuts are taken, when diversity means tokenism without equity or inclusion, marginalized people show up for work feeling unsafe and isolated. Tokenism is a huge issue in leadership as well, and in the past couple of years, we've increasingly seen organizations creating a new role, chief diversity officer, ostensibly to rectify their homogenous top brass. The potential for this role is positive, giving a person real power to steer and deliver diversity, equity, and inclusion in the organization. It is important. However, this work isn't leading to changes in other executive roles, such as the role itself can sometimes be a tokenistic output. In a post-BLM world, some companies have placed black executives in these positions, giving them unclear responsibilities and short-term timelines. And it needs to stop. Funnily enough, one of the organizations I once worked for had a diversity and inclusion officer who was a white man. We've seen it too many times. The one black Asian, the one black LGBTQIA person, the one character in the TV show or film that represents an entire group. Often, the rest of the cast is white, straight, and able-bodied. Even worse, we often see these characters as the funny friend or the sidekick, almost never a lead character. Even when we do see representation, we frequently see characters cast who are light-skinned or mixed-race, characters who could pass as white or are more difficult to place within a specific ethnic group. The characters that individuals are subjected to play as well perpetuate stereotypes. For years, Asian men were never seen as the love interest. In fact, Stephen Yuen paved the way in 2010 by showing an Asian man in a relationship with a white woman on The Walking Dead. Indian actors typically have exaggerated accents played up to further insinuate their lack of understanding of others and overall intelligence. Black characters often die first in horror movies. It's become a joke. Black men are also portrayed oftentimes as intimidating, and black women are portrayed as loud-mouthed and sassy. Latina individuals are shown as seductive, or are shown as sassy with a temper. Indigenous people are almost never shown and are often misrepresented in film and television as tribalistic. Even worse, Instead of finding appropriate representation in actors or actresses, 
individuals are cast to play these parts who are not from that race. Thanks, Scarlett Johansson. This perpetuates the idea that only white ideas and stories are the norm, and that BIPOC does not belong. Just the recent outcry over a black actress being cast as The Little Mermaid shows how normalized whiteness is in cinema to the extent that people cannot imagine a fictional character being a person of color. Many may think that there is a fine line between diversity and tokenism, but it's quite obvious that when there is a stereotype being upheld and when someone is being present as a token hire, we can see it. We have witnessed so many racially motivated incidents and uprisings. A particularly prominent one is the movement surrounding George Floyd's death and Black Lives Matter in 2020. This was a defining moment that social media was almost entirely dominated by the Blackout Tuesday hashtag. With these happenings, it's only natural that the topic of diversity has reached the spotlight within our workforce discussions and organizations once again. But what everyone seems to forget is that creating a diverse team is not enough. This is where inclusion enters the stage to play a role. Inclusion is a continuous process that has to last, long after employees or volunteers are hired, because when it is absent, that is where tokenism reigns. Tokenism is a forced form of diversity that creates a superficial appearance of equality without truly achieving it. It lacks the inclusive behaviors that matter. The concept of inclusion is involving a wide range of workers in the decision-making process, and instead of just having them present as mere representatives, true inclusion is never about ensuring that just 10% of an organization are women or not white. It's about having all of those voices heard, including them in important meetings and empowering them to succeed, because sharing space without sharing power is, in essence, tokenism. And ultimately, Diversity is not about focusing on race, sexual preference, disability, skin color, and gender. It is about gathering varying ideas from different people, regardless of their beliefs and ethnicity. It's about seeing people as individuals that have something of value to add to society. If you are a leader, take a step back and ask yourself, have you let your people from different backgrounds, genders, ethnicities collaborate and create meaningful impact in the organization altogether? If the answer is no, or not much, then this is a sign that your leadership is shit and tokenization is happening. Tokenism has also been used to justify oppression and microaggressions from dominant groups. That idea that my one black friend says it's okay to say the n-word, therefore it's okay, has been used to excuse blatant, harmful racism, just as my female friends don't feel unsafe around me, being used to get away with sexism and even predatory behavior. Being the token black person is sometimes used to assert that someone is indeed not racist. I was, often, the token Indian person in a majority white school. I am expected to be the authority on the lives of all Indian South African people. People think that I represent my people and my entire culture. However, at the same time, I'm supposed to rise above Indian South African culture or Indian South Africanness. I'm often told that I speak so well for an Indian person and that I'm surprisingly educated and that my taste in music is praised for not being just Bollywood tunes and my nerdiness and Star Wars geekery has been used as an example of the gaming community not being racist or sexist, which it very much is. Many people of color and women in particular, if not most, have experience of being tokenized by friends, family, bosses and even partners. The microaggressive nature of these encounters builds up an inherent mistrust of people who use us as their get-out-of-jail-free card for being bigoted. This thinking, scholars say, is steeped in complicated social factors, from a reluctance to have blunt conversations about race and misogyny to a failure to acknowledge differences altogether. This is why, after a white person's proclamation that he has black friends or isn't violent to women, often comes an insistence that they don't see color or they are a nice guy. 
Unless people are highly prejudiced, they don't usually stereotype people in the complete absence of supporting information. We wait, we interact, and we draw judgments on the basis of what we learn from that person. However, and here's the kicker, we don't require much evidence before we come to a stereotypical conclusion, but require just a bit of evidence before coming to a non-stereotypical one. While everyone is guilty of this, some are more so than others. There is this myth of the good black person or the good woman who isn't like other women, as if being authentically your race or gender is a bad thing. Even when you are a so-called good minority, you still have to prepare yourself for the indignities of daily life as a marginalized person. All the times when you will be asked to show ID while your white friends standing right next to you don't need to. It's knowing that I will always be pulled out of line at the airport to be randomly screened and watching especially brown men with beards do the same. It's being asked to explain everything you know about D&D to prove your worth when, as a woman, you're surrounded by a group of men. Is it really that random when it happens every single time? Being a good minority still means that people who don't know you will assume that you're poor or uneducated or into hats and handbags and shoes and gloves and look at you with eye-widening shock when you tell them that you are an educated professional or enjoy woodwork. You can recognize the tension when you walk into a room until people realize they can relax around you because you're not one of those bad types that you have worked so hard to assimilate in order to survive. I could speak so much more on this, and over time I probably will, but in essence, the way in which groups are stereotyped and tokenized is dangerous. Homogenizing large groups of people, holding all accountable for acts for which only a few are responsible in terms of race, gender, class, sexuality, disability, and many other intersections, marginalized people have been on the receiving end of harsh stereotyping that has led to not just tokenism, but things such as mass incarceration, hate crimes, profiling, and other discriminatory behaviors that range from micro to macroaggressions. Until we stop seeing marginalized people as a monolith, these issues will not go away. While it seems that the dominant cultures and identities, <coughs> white men, are the only ones afforded the luxury of individualism, we also need to guard against the cultural genocide that may come with seeking the same individualism that allows us to break from harmful stereotypes. It's not easy, but it has to happen, else we will be stuck in this perpetual cycle. Thank you for listening. I would like to thank my patrons for making this podcast possible and my endless conversations with Jada Gannon Day, who has inspired this episode. See you next week, where I will be tackling the difficult topic of rape culture.